The passage of scripture we are studying this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 6 is widely considered to be the most important section within the Hebrew Torah. If you are raised in the Jewish faith, this passage is central. It might be the very first passage of scripture you ever learn. Here the covenant obligations are set out to the people of Israel. And verse 4 is the starting point or the centerpiece, if you will, what is known as the Shema prayer. The Shema prayer. And the NIV translates it this way, Hear, O Israel, Shema means hear or listen or observe. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, you may have a different translation and another suitable rendering, and it fits more neatly with the rest of the passage, would be to render the Hebrew this way. Hear, O Israel... The Lord, Yahweh, is our God, the Lord alone. So in a world where many gods are put forward, in a world where there are many worship options, Israel is called to confess the name of Yahweh alone. Now my understanding is that observant Jews still recite the Shema prayer twice every single day. It's also my understanding that an observant Jew, if they're able to determine their final living moments, they will spend their last moments on earth reciting this prayer as the final thing they say. But of course, it's not enough to simply identify the correct God among the myriad of options. If Yahweh is Lord, if the God spoken of in Deuteronomy is Lord, it matters immensely how we relate to Him. If this is the one true God, it matters immensely how we get on with Him day to day. So what follows the identification of Yahweh as Lord is our obligation to Him. This is what Moses says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus, as you know, repeated this command. He repeated this command declaring that it was the greatest of all of the commandments. You might even say that Jesus interpreted this command because he included an obligation to love God with all your mind. And at first reading, we're probably pleased to see a commandment like this. We're probably quite pleased to see that the greatest commandment has love at its heart, at its core. But then we need to ask an important question. How much am I to love God? How much am I to love God? Is there a degree... Is there a fixed point to which my love for God must reach? Yes, there is. And it's 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's not enough for us to love God outwardly. It's not enough for us to stand in a pulpit and say some things about the Bible. It's not enough for us to say some prayers. It's not enough for us to attend some Sunday morning services. God wants your affections to be engaged. He wants your heart to be in it. And not just a little bit. Maximum affection is called for. Now I realize we're a Presbyterian church. And I know down the street there's the Church of God of Prophecy and there's all kinds of charismatic churches whose theology we want to distance ourselves from. But we make a mistake when we want to distance ourselves from the enthusiasm of the Pentecostal church. When I've gone to charismatic services, what I've seen is people worshiping with all their heart. There's no need to hold back, to harness your passion for the Lord, or to restrain your zeal for the things that He values. God wants to be loved with all your heart. Secondly, He wants to be loved with all your soul. Love the Lord your God with all your soul. If the reference to all your heart is to indicate or to encourage maximum affection, then the reference to all your soul is meant to encourage maximum devotion. To love the Lord your God with all your soul is to make God Almighty your supreme priority. It's to say that God is the most important part of my life. That Jesus is supreme to me. Or as Jesus himself frames it, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. I recently picked up a book written by Bill Hybels titled Simplify. I'm only halfway through, so I'll have to save my review of the book for another day. But in this book, Simplify, Bill Hybels suggests that the easiest way for us to assess how we're doing in terms of our devotion to God, the easiest way to measure our devotion, is to look at our daytime. Is to pick up our calendar, flip through the pages, and see what you're up to in a given day or a given week. Bill Hybels maintains that your daytime or your calendar will tell you what you are really seeking first above all else. Well, I had to put the book down because I was feeling rather convicted. But I can tell you that when I put the book down, I picked my daytimer up. And when I picked my daytimer up, I entered in prayer time. Now, of course, I pray. I, I pray whenever I have opportunity to. But I got the point. If Jesus is my all, if God 
is supreme in my life, then I need to make prayer my first priority, not the thing I do with spare time. That my worship of God must have a central place in my calendar and not be something to fill the gaps with. My daytime are revealed priorities that I was not pleased with. So I tell you this morning, I am changing my calendar. You may even want to put in your daytime or worship service at St. Andrew's Kirk, Sunday morning at 10.30. Some of you are thinking, well, that's silly. I come every Sunday. That's okay. I think it's a good habit. It's a good habit. Put it in there. Remind yourself of the centrality of Jesus Christ in your life. Why? Because it's our custom to put important things in our calendar. And so if prayer is important, if worship is important, if the study of God's Word is important, just don't let that be your spare time thing. Put it in your calendar. Love the Lord your God with all your soul. Thirdly, love the Lord your God with all your strength. I take this to be a reference to activity. I take this a call to invest serious bodily energy into my loving God. More simply, I take this to be a call to do something. Not just to stand in a pulpit and say some things. Not just to pray or to preach or to read or to witness. But to do some things to energize my body for the sake of kingdom purposes. Now, as Reformed Christians, we're careful to say, well, our salvation is not based upon what we do. Salvation is not based upon the good deeds that we may or may not do. But clearly, there's a place to do good things. Good deeds become an expression of our love for God. Love the Lord your God with all your strength. We do things with our strength as an expression of love. In response to who God is, in response to what He has done for us, we ought to give maximum effort in service of His kingdom. Fourthly, love the Lord your God with all your mind. With all your mind. Friends, Christianity is not a blind faith. It's not a leap of faith. Christianity is a reasonable faith. It is a rational faith. It is based upon things that God has done in history. It is based upon what God has done primarily through the death of Christ and through the resurrection of Christ. God has gifted us with the capacity to think. And the capacity to reason. And here we are being reminded to love our God with our intellect. Well, how do we do that? Make it your practice to daily study this book. Study the Word of God regularly. Think deeply upon what is written in this book. And there are other many helpful books. Many helpful books that can help us to better understand the great one book, the scripture. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. So that's it. That's the standard. That's all you have to do. One commandment. The greatest commandment. All the other ones can be hung on. 
or at least hung on the two. Love the Lord your God with all your all that is within you, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the standard. It's simple. It's straightforward. But it's not easy, is it? Would you say the bar has been set rather high, don't you think? And the more I consider this command, the more I am convinced that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I know this because I look at the standard. I look at the degree of affection that's required. The degree of devotion that's called for. The degree of strength and effort that's required. The degree to which I need to think deeply on the things of God. And I realize I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. The greatest commandment is a beautiful commandment. But the greatest commandment reveals that I have fallen dreadfully short of the divine standard. Now you may recall that we said some similar things in our study of the Ten Commandments. And in that study, we conceded that the commandments are not so much a ladder we must climb in order to be accepted by God, but rather the commandments are a mirror by which we see our true self. A mirror by which we see our true condition. Unfortunately, our condition, my condition, is neither what we'd like it to be, nor is our condition what it ought to be. Now that sounds like bad news, and it is. It is bad news. But friends, this is what makes God's grace so amazing. Because God's grace comes to sinners. God's grace saves those who are blind, those who are lost, those who are wretched. This is the category of persons that God comes to. God's grace doesn't come to those who imagine themselves to already be good enough. No, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, that's an important note. So many people that I've engaged in conversation over the years, they will tell me that they're just not ready to come back to church yet. They're trying to get some things in their life back in order. They're trying to clean themselves up internally, relationally, before they step back inside. But this isn't congruent with what the scripture tells us God is doing. We don't clean ourselves up and then come and get accepted. But while we are sinners, God cleans us up. So we come not as clean people. We come as people that need to be cleaned up by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we do? Let's circle back. What do we do with this command set out for us in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5? We've already said it's a really high standard. It's a really difficult exam to pass. To pass. Well, I want to say that our inability to pass the test, our inability to meet the standard, does not remove our obligation to pursue it. So the wrong way to look at this is, oh, I'll never be able to live up to this, so I'm not even going to bother. No, our inability to meet the standard does not remove our obligation to pursue it. 
is too important. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. We've got to pursue this. So I hope you're asking the question, how do I do this? How do I get there? Okay, I get that I'm not going to score 100% on this exam. How do I make some progress with this? How do I make some improvement? How do I approach this command? You must pray. You must cry out to God. You must do as I have done countless times and say, Lord, I can't do this. By my own strength, I can't even come close to the standard. Lord, I don't love you as I ought to. Lord, help me to love you more than I do. Lord, I read the scripture, but I'm not hungry for the scripture as I ought to be. Lord, make me hungry to read your word. Lord, I know there's needs to be met out there, but I'm not all that motivated, or I'm not as motivated as I might be. Lord, make me eager. And equip me to meet the needs of others. Lord, you are important to me. That's why I go to church. That's why I read your Bible. That's why I'm talking to you now. But I don't treasure you above every worldly good. Lord, cause me to treasure you more than anything in this universe. Pray to God. Cry out to God. Ask for His help. If you read on in Deuteronomy 6, you'll see that there's an additional obligation that's tacked on. And it's, it, it's an important one. We, if we read on in Deuteronomy 6, we'll see that there's more than just individual devotion at stake here. There's more than just individual devotion at stake. So this isn't a, okay, here's how you get on with Yahweh and yourself. Here's how you can get on better with Jesus. Look at verse 7. There's an obligation to tell other people what you've learned. There's an obligation to tell other people what you've learned. Verse 7, impress them on your children. Talk about them, the words, when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, because they didn't have cars, so they're walking on the road a lot. When you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. You see, love and loyalty toward the Lord your God is intended to go beyond your personal obedience to Him. But your love and loyalty to the Lord your God should also extend to public proclamation. I'm not suggesting you need a megaphone and you go down to Bay Street and start shouting all of this. My preacher told me I need to make a public proclamation. Just share it with your children. Share it with your grandchildren. Share it with your colleagues. The Lord has positioned you to have a sphere of influence over people who live in proximity to you. That's all the scripture's saying. Just don't make it a secret. Don't keep it to yourself. Don't make your colleagues guess about the status of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Make it known that He is supreme to you. It logically follows. If the Lord is the supreme object of your devotion, 
It logically follows that you'll talk about him. That he'll be a part of your conversation. It logically follows that if I treasure the Lord more than anything else in this world, that you're going to see some indication of this by the way I live my life, the way I talk, and the way I order my life. Maybe you're just waiting for the impetus or the basis or the reason for why you you might pursue this. So it's worth asking the question, why should we? Why should we? Why should we put God above all? He knows I have bills to pay. He knows I have obligations to family and friends. He knows I'm running at at a high speed and I can't slow down. Why should I reorder my life and treasure Him above all else? Why should I make Him the supreme object of my affection? I wonder if the Israelites asked those questions. Because whether they did or not, Moses answered them. Moses answers those questions in verses 10 through 12. And the answer that Moses gives to the Israelites should help us find the basis for our devotion. Moses tells the Israelites, verse 10 to 12, what the Lord is going to do for them. What he promises to do in the future. And he reminds them of what the Lord has already done. First, Moses tells the Israelites that the Lord will soon cause them to possess a beautiful land with flourishing cities and abundant resources, a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses says, God is going to give this to you. And so you've got to love him back. Moses also urges the people, well, don't forget, you were slaves in Egypt. And it was God who miraculously delivered you out of that bondage. Love the Lord your God. Now maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, that's great. The Lord did some amazing things for the Israelites. They were slaves in Egypt and he freed them. He gave them a land flowing with milk and honey. Super. But what does any of that have to do with me? Well, remember, Jesus repeats the commandment. Jesus repeats the commandment to love the Lord your God with all that's within us. And this would indicate to me that the command still applies beyond Moses' day. That the command remains relevant for us even today. And yes, our basis for loving God will be different from the Israelites. We weren't slaves in Egypt, nor will we get to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. So there'll be a difference for our motivation in terms of specifics, but the basis for our love and devotion to God will be essentially the same framework. Here it is we too can bring to our mind what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Right? We weren't slaves in Egypt, but we can bring to mind what the Lord Jesus Christ did for me. We can also bring to mind that which the Lord Jesus Christ promises to still do for His people. And there are some similarities. 
first of all, similarities. Like the Israelites, we were ones in bondage. It was Jesus who said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So, it's not a pleasant thing to hear. It's not something we want to dwell on at great length. But it's an important theological point. When Jesus says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And that's a dreadful predicament to be in. Especially since the Bible declares that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So the very thing that brings judgment into my life, the very thing that invites God's wrath into my life, the very thing that brings about my death, is the very thing I'm enslaved to. My predicament is dire. Your predicament is dire. Yet we have this great hope. Jesus said, If the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus paid for our freedom. We were bound by sin and Jesus paid for our freedom. He died a gruesome death to procure our freedom. And as we sang last Sunday, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Dear friends, if Jesus Christ has set you free, does that not inspire your love and devotion to Him? If Christ has made you a son of the Almighty, does, not, does that not inspire you to treasure Him above all else? Jesus has done so much for us. But there's also more He's going to do. The ancient Israelites were promised a land flowing with milk and honey. And the prospect of possessing that land inspired their love for God. The thought of crossing the Jordan and possessing this luxurious land caused them to love the Lord their God. Christian friend, we are promised something infinitely better than this. We are promised a city of gold. The gold is transparent like glass, we're told. The gates made of pearls. We're promised an eternal dwelling place lined with jasper, sapphire, emerald, topaz, and a whole bunch of jewels that I can't even pronounce. This is going to be an awesome existence. We're told that there's no darkness in this place. That, that, that there's always light. The gates are always opened. We're told that we have constant access to the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. Here, we don't see Jesus. We trust He is here by His Spirit. We trust He's in this room right now. But we don't see Him in heaven, in the city of gold. We will see Him face to face and have constant and regular access to Him. What kind of place is this? This is an eternal place. It's a place without sin. So no crime, no breaking of rules, no mistakes. It's a place without disease. No cancer, no brain tumors, 
No sickness of any kind. There's no pain in this place. No broken relationships in this place. No sorrow, no sadness, no death. Every tear, we're told, will be wiped from our eyes. And in His presence, we will experience the fullness of joy. Friends, think on this seriously with me. Because you might be like me. This earthly existence is pretty good. We've had some heartache. We've experienced some loss. But it's pretty good here. It will be perfect in glory. It will be perfect in glory. Now, some of you have had tremendous loss. For some of you, your earthly existence has been one heartache after another. Sorrow piled upon sorrow piled upon sorrow. I love this lyric from a, a recent song. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Now we all know this earth has sorrows. Jesus said in this world you will have trouble. And we know that to be true. This world is full of trouble, full of problems, full of sorrow. But earth has no sorrow that heaven, this existence, can't heal. So friends, in light of all of that, in light of all that Jesus has already done for you, in light of all that Jesus still promises to do for you in the future, in light of all of this, we love Him. We give ourselves to His purposes. We devote ourselves intensely to do His will. But we struggle. We struggle to love Him with all our heart. With all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind. We struggle. So Lord, we pray, help us to love you more. Cause us to treasure you above every worldly good. Help us to make Jesus Christ supreme. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.